Welcome to the Quest Express, your passport to immersive travel experiences and cozy conversations. For curious explorers who understand the art of slow travel, we're your go-to podcast. Every few weeks, we touch the heartbeat of a new city where we chat with artists, innovators, historians, and entrepreneurs who make each city come alive. The Quest Express is not just a podcast. It's your ultimate slow travel companion. It's an invitation to begin your own quest. Today, we'll conclude with our final episode with Eric Melvin, local historian, author, and walking tour guide. How did an American lecturer and an unexpected U.S. president inspire Eric to study Scottish history? Where the heck did bagpipes come from, and why are they so pervasive in Scottish culture? And the story of Lady Stare, which is quite possibly the most creative marriage proposal you've ever heard. Well, let's go back, if you don't mind, Ben. I just want to go back to your childhood a little bit. You spent your childhood in Edinburgh, and what first clues did you have that foreshadowed your interests and your work today? What influences did you have? That, that's a very good question. I was lucky because my mother had a little, little boy to look after. I was sent to a nursery school, so which was quite unusual in those days. And then I went to what's now a very posh, fee-paying co-educational school called George Heriot's. But at that time, um, the fees were only about £5 a term. It was boys only. And it was a wonderful historic building. It's one of the finest sort of Renaissance-style palaces in Scotland. It was built by money left by a man called George Heriot, who was the court jeweller to King James VI and Queen Anne. And he followed the king down to London and became the court jeweller there and made a fortune. Mm. He was a, a very philanthropic man and he had no legitimate children. So he leaves his money to the city of Edinburgh. And he'd been impressed with a charitable hospital. Now, hospital was not for sick children, sick people. That was an infirmary. This was a, a sort of a place where poor people could be boarded and lodged. And he left his money to the city to provide lodgings and an education for what he called poor, fatherless bairns. These were the children of merchants who lost their fathers and the family were destitute. So he had this wonderful building. He never saw the building. A wonderful Renaissance-style palace building. I'll send you a picture of it. And it provided education and lodgings for 180 boys who were given free education. And they were trained for an apprenticeship so that they had a decent job to go to. And if you go to the building today, it's a wonderful building. There is a big quadrangle with the numbers 1 to 180 carved out. And that's where the boys stood. And it lasted as a charitable institution until the 1880s when it became a day school. The Scottish Education Act, which required kids in Scotland to go to school, was in force. So it became a day school. Uh, and I went to that day school. And you're very conscious that you're being educated in a building that's absolutely filled with history. Mm. But it, it seems bizarre. As far as history was concerned, we were given virtually no Scottish history at all. It was all English history. So it was the English kings and queens, it was the English battles, it was the English wars, it was the English agricultural revolution, the English industrial revolution. You knew virtually nothing about Scotland. But I was very fortunate that my parents were very interested in history. We had a lot of history books. My two uncles were both history teachers. So as children, as pupils, we were never taken out 
to look at the Royal Mile, the castle or the palace, although they were on the school's doorstep. Um, I was almost completely ignorant of my own history. And that pertained into university. I did British History Honours 1, British History Honours 2, but we'd only one lecture on Scottish history a term. It was all English history or European history. And we'd one lecture a term from the professor of Scottish history, Gordon Donaldson. And when he walked into the lecture theatre, half the class got up and walked out. They were English. They weren't the slightest bit interested in Scottish history. Now, I think it was 1963, I'm giving my age away, all the history undergraduates and postgraduate students were summoned to the history library in the old quarter of the university. And the senior professor, Dennessy, I can remember this, senior professor Dennessy held up a book and he said, this is war history. You must not read this. And this was a book called Glen Cole, which was about an author called John Preble who was a Canadian who lived and worked in England. And he said, this is wrong history. And the book was trashed by academic historians. The problem for the academic historians was the book was very well researched. It was very well written. And Preble followed up with other books about the Highland Clearances, Culloden, the Darien Scheme. And he, as it were, introduced my generation to Scottish history. And as a consequence, the school curriculum was changed in the 1970s. And all of a sudden, kids were being taught Scottish history, and they were being taken out of school to visit their Scottish history. So my generation was denied, as it were, being introduced to our Scottish also our culture. We had no Scottish literature apart from one Walter Scott novel. Uh, so it was nothing about Alan Ramsay, nothing about Robert Burns. Uh, and so, in a sense, we're almost cheated out of our education. And I feel quite strongly about that. That's changed. That has changed remarkably. So I was lucky that my parents were interested. So we were taken out. We'll go to the castle. We'll go to the palace. So the interest grew at that point. And my parents were going with lots of books about Scottish history uh, that I could read at home. Um, but what really inspired me in terms of becoming a history teacher was not a Scottish lecture. It's not an English lecture. It was an American lecture. And he was absolutely astonishingly good, a cat called Dr. Jim Compton. And he'd become a lecturer partly because his father had been in the American embassy in Berlin in the 1930s. And he was blamed for not alerting the State Department to Hitler and the dangers of Nazism. So he was trying to restore his father's reputation. He'd been a campaign worker for John F. Kennedy and describing Kennedy's assassination in whole classes in tears. But he was a brilliant, brilliant teacher. So I ended up doing a special honours course in Thomas Jefferson and the Origins of American Foreign Policy. And this is at the height of the Vietnam War. Absolutely fascinating. So it was his inspiration as an absolutely astonishingly good teacher that pushed me towards teaching history. And his name again was Jim Compton? Jim Compton, yes. Beautiful. Um, but then again, I was helped very much because there was a change in the Scottish syllabus, which required you to get out and about. And one of the topics that you taught was changing life in Scotland, 1760 to 1820. And you discovered to your astonishment that there'd been an agricultural revolution in Scotland, an industrial revolution, a transport revolution, a golden age, when all of a sudden Edinburgh is the intellectual capital of Western Europe. You had characters like Deacon Brodie and Burke and Hare and the radical trials that sent people to Botany Bay for asking for the vote. It was a wonderful thing. And for most people of my generation, it's suddenly made you realise, gosh, we've got quite a good student here. 
Yes, you're so in a way, well, the first thing I was thinking of was that Schopenhauer quote with the monopoly of history and the rewriting of it lies by omission. I was thinking of that Schopenhauer quote, truth is first ridiculed, then violently opposed and finally accepted as truth. And so you were born just at the right time to be a steward of of the truth and bring bring forward the history. That explains a lot. I, I understand now. I was also very lucky that one of my uncles, who was a history teacher, moved into writing and publishing, and he became the managing director of a company called W&R Chambers, who were famous for dictionaries. You might have heard of a Chambers dictionary. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And in the 1950s, he'd written a history book with a colleague, and he asked me in the 1970s, would I like to revise the book and republish it? And that got me started in writing. So I was very, very lucky. Interesting. Because our family are in Tokyo. We have two sons. They both live and work in Tokyo. And we've had a, a connection of 20 years with Tokyo and Japan with two Japanese Japanese grandchildren, a Japanese mummy. So I have no grandparenting duties. So to fill my day, I, I enjoy you know, walking tours and writing books. I love that. Do you have a favourite Scottish poem? A favourite Scottish poem? I think I probably do. Now, 25th of January is Burns Night. It celebrates the birth of Robert Burns, and that will be celebrated throughout the world. He probably has more attention to his birth and his death and his writing than any other poet, published poet. He's an absolute phenomenon, and he wrote most of his best poems in Scots. He was a very emotional man, a very passionate man, a very romantic man. He sired, I think, 12 children, uh, eight of whom I think were illegitimate. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Although he came from a humble background, he was a farmer. His father was a farmer. His farmer had had him very well educated in Ayrshire. And he started writing poetry at the age of 15. He also wrote songs. And he saved, I think, 200 Scottish tunes from oblivion because he went into partnership here in Edinburgh with a man called George Thompson. And he wasn't a musician, but he had a wonderful ear of tune. And he'd pick up a tune on his travel and he would sing it to a friend who would then annotate it and he would put words to it. Oh. So things like Auld Lang Syne, for example, that was an old Scottish tune, which he, he sings. But I think my favourite would be a very passionate call for fairness. It's called A Man's A Man For All That, where he castigates wealth and he castigates racial distinction. At the end of the day, a man's a man for all that. It's quite a, a, a strong voice of protest, and he ran the risk of being arrested after the French Revolution because the establishment were terrified that the ideas of equality, fraternity, should come and infect the British working classes. And this was very much a call for internationalism. So a man's a man for all that. But he also got some beautiful love songs. My love is like a red, red rose. Oh, yes. Love that one. So he's a wonderful body of work. And he was only 37 when he died. I mean, what might have happened if he carried on living? I don't know. So he comes to Edinburgh and he's about to actually emigrate to Jamaica to take up a position as an overseer on a plantation. He's got his ticket. His trunks are already on their way to Greenock to get the boat. But he's been writing poems really for his friends. And he's persuaded by his friends to publish them before he goes. So they're published. 600 copies are printed and they just sell like hot cakes. And one of the copies comes to Edinburgh, where it's very favourably reviewed by a man called Henry Mackenzie, a famous author. And a letter was written by a blind Edinburgh academic called Dr. Blacklock, inviting him to come to Edinburgh 
and gets an Edinburgh edition of his poetry published. And he tosses a coin. Do I go to Jamaica? Do I go to Edinburgh? He comes to Edinburgh. He makes six visits to Edinburgh in all. And society opens their doors to him. And it says a lot about Scottish establishment. Unlike England and certainly France, there wasn't a rigid class system. Yeah. You went trapped in your class. If you had talent, the doors would open. And then they opened their doors to him. And he becomes a celebrity and the poems are published. Actually, hang on a sec. Okay. This is an original copy of the Edinburgh edition of Robert Burns. And he posed for a portrait, famous Scottish artist. That's the portrait done of him by Alexander Naismith. And this is the poems in the Scottish dialect. And this becomes a bestseller and copies are bought as far away as in England. And it becomes an inspiration. So I think it would be a Burns poem. A man's a man for all that, which is a real political statement. It's wonderful. That's beautiful. And and then my next question was, what's your favorite Scottish song? There's a wonderful collection of Scottish folk songs. There, of course, there are any number of modern Scottish songs, you know, popular songs. I think I'd still go back to Robert Burns. My love is like a red, red rose. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, you already answered it. Yeah, you already answered it. And so I think the the last time we spoke, I asked you about the bagpipes because I, I had one of those awe-inspiring deer-in-headlights introductions to the bagpipe when I was six years old. We were on family vacation in a summer cottage, and I walked out with my parents. It was morning time. It was so mystical and otherworldly. It was morning time. There was fog coming over the hills, and there was like three bagpipers coming up over the hill, and I I was just frozen. Like if I felt like I had, I felt recognition. I felt this is so exotic. And, and I just fell in love with the bagpipes then at six. That sensation that you described, I can echo that. Yeah. Because something you must do if you come to Edinburgh during the festival is go to the Edinburgh military tattoo on the esplanade of the castle. Now, originally it was entirely military, um, but not any longer. And you'll have musical items, dance items, coming from all over the world. So it really is a global um, military tattoo. But it always starts and finishes with the massed pipes and drums marching onto the esplanade, and you get an absolute shiver down your spine when you hear it. Yes. It's unmistakable. And it's an experience that I don't think you could replicate anywhere else in the world. Uh-uh. But the pipes didn't originate in Scotland, as you know. It can be traced right back to ancient Greece. Um, and then to Rome, and supposedly the Emperor Nero could play the pipes. I don't know if that's true. But they come with the various sort of movement of peoples coming into the country. They're very much associated with Celtic Scotland, with Ireland and with Scotland, because they were quite simple to manufacture. They weren't expensive like a violin, or you didn't have to have a brass foundry to make your trumpets or whatever. And they were used as a form of communication. Each clan chief would have their piper. And they were very much used during the various clan battles. And they could actually send different messages depending on what tunes they're playing. But there are different types of pipe music. There's a very slow pibroch, which is almost like a, a funereal march. And then you've got the, you know, the proper fast piping tunes. So it, it's just a wonderful thing. I have a, a cousin who's a professional bagpipe player who goes all over the world playing his bagpipes. Really? He's had a wonderful world. He plays at wedding receptions and fancy yachts in the Mediterranean, things like that. 
Oh my goodness! And he you know, two pipe bands, and one of his sons a professional piper. But it's it's a wonderful. It's hard to learn. You have to be quite strong blowing. Uh, people will start off with a chanter, which is like a flute, and graduate from that. But uh, no, it still stirs the blood. Do bagpipes still have sheep? Are they still made of sheep stomachs, or was that old? Yes, I think the traditional form of manufacture is still found out. You could you could check that online. I can't answer confidently, but I would have thought. Yes, the authenticity would require that to be still made the same way. Still pipe tunes being written today. It's not as though this is a museum of music. There are still pipe tunes celebrating particular events. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's 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 that's one thing you mentioned in the last is that it's the it's an outdoor instrument. Even though some people still insist on playing it inside, it's meant to be reverberate outside, and it's used to to marcate ceremonies or events or yes. you know it can celebrate a birth it can celebrate a death it can celebrate a battle a festival yes it's very much an instrument of communication often of emotions i'd love to ask you in closing because i i ask this of a lot of my guests i'm going to say a few words and then you just tell me the the first adjectives that come to your mind okay so first one first word bagpipes emotion the next word is Edinburgh. Well, it, it's my home. I'm very, very fond of it. It's very warm, very welcoming. It's got so much to offer its citizens and its visitors. Edinburgh Castle. An iconic symbol of Scotland, its history, its story. It's the longest continuously inhabited location in the United Kingdom. There's a Bronze Age settlement there going back 5,000 more years. So it's always been at the heart of Scotland. Uh, Lady... Stair. Lady Stair um, is a wonderful story uh, of uh, an aristocratic lady of Edinburgh in the early 1700s. Shall I tell you the story? Share the story. I love this story. (laughs) She marries as a teenager with Lord Primrose, who's older than her, and he's a member of the Scottish aristocracy. And we still have a Primrose family, members of the Scottish aristocracy, uh, and the head is known as Lord Rosebery. And in the 19th century, Lord Rosebery is the British Prime Minister. So she marries a much older man, but he turns out to be utterly worthless. Um, he drinks, he womanizes, he's quite violent. And at one occasion, he's just to jump out a window because he attacks her with a knife. So he's sort of ostracized in Edinburgh, goes to the continent, tries to marry bigamously, but is called out by Lady Steer's brother, uh, and he dies in the continent. So she's got a wonderful townhouse off the Royal Mile, which still stands. It's the Writers' Museum now in Edinburgh. Uh, And she's wealthy. She's got this wonderful townhouse. She's got a garden surrounding the townhouse. She's very attractive. She's very eligible. So a queue of young aristocratic Scots try to get her hand. But she's had enough of men. She's not going to marry again. She's determined. That's it. But one of them was an awful trick on her. This is Viscount Steer, son of the Dalrymple family. And he bribes her servant to leave her front door open one night. So at dead of night, he comes to the house. And in the morning, people going past, it's a public right of way, look up and see him standing naked at the window. So he's exposed himself and he's exposed her reputation. She has to marry him to save her reputation. So it's a grudging marriage. She's having a tough time of it. But he womanizes and he drinks as well. And one morning he wakes up in his living room, his chair, and there's his wife 
sitting there with a black eye and a bleeding nose. What's happened? And she said, well, you came home drunk last night and you attacked me. And he's ashamed, he's shocked. And he makes what's for Scots a very solemn promise. He will never drink again unless it's poured out for him by his wife. And so they have a long and happy marriage after that. He becomes the commander of the Royal Marines. She becomes the sort of the, the doyen of Edinburgh society. She's one of the first in Edinburgh to have a coloured slave, a servant. Of course, a slave, a servant. And she lives to a ripe old age. So it's a very happy relationship. So she survives what could have been two disastrous marriages. And her house still stands today. So her story lives on. That's an amazing story. And I dare say, I don't necessarily want to give this as the moral of the story, but the moral of the story could be, uh, gentlemen, if you're rejected many times, you can always slip inside the apartment and stand naked to embarrass her. Although I don't think that would work in today's society. But uh... no, I don't think. Um, you know, it's documented, so it's not a made up story. Right, right. It's a good story. It's amazing that he made that promise only to drink what she poured also. That's... Yes. So and it, seems, it seems to have worked. Yes. Um, so they live a happy life thereafter, which is a nice way to end it. When you come to Edinburgh, Lady Stairs House is one of four city museums in the Royal Mile. This celebrates uh, the life and work of two authors born in Edinburgh, Walter Scott and Robert Louis Stevenson, and Robert Burns, who stayed just next door when he came to Edinburgh. But the house was going to be demolished as Edinburgh uh, Old Town became a huge rundown slum in the second half of the 19th century. Conditions were appalling. All the people of influence were away in the new town and it was going to be demolished. But it was saved by a man called Sir Patrick Geddes, who's a very early environmentalist who becomes uh, a specialist in town planning. He devised modern day Tel Aviv after the First World War and becomes a professor of town planning in India. And he arrives in Edinburgh as a, as a, a lecturer in botany. And to his horror, most of old Edinburgh has been knocked down in the name of public health in the second part of the 19th century. And he campaigns to save what he can. And he persuades Lord Rosebery, the British Prime Minister, to save the house. So Lord Rosebery pays for its restoration and very generously donates it to the city of Edinburgh. Wow. He's not going to use it as his townhouse. Uh, and so the council now run it as a museum. So you can see it now still standing. And so the story is preserved. I love that. I'm going to check that out. Uh, and the other museums, Writers Museum, what were the other three that? Well, well, the other museums on the Royal Mile, and astonishingly, in these austere times, all the city museums and national galleries are free. You don't have to pay an entrance. Uh, so we've got the, the Writers Museum, and then moving down the high street towards the palace, we've got the world's only Museum of Childhood. And this was set up by an Edinburgh councillor who loved children's toys. And he amassed a huge collection, which he donated at his death. So it's a museum of toys, going right back to the toys of the ancient Egyptians and things like that, right up to Lego. Um, so it's a wonderful museum. And then moving further down, I've got a museum which is not a local authority one, but John Knox's house, uh, named after the Scottish reformer, now is a private museum, and they've recreated a townhouse of the late 1500s. And then moving down further into part of the Royal Mile called the Cannon Gate, we've got the Edinburgh story, which is in 16th century houses, which have been knocked together. And across the road, we've got the People's story, which is housed in the old toll booth that 
the sort of town hall of the Canongate, which is a separate borough till the 1860s. So it tells the life of working people in the 1800s and 1900s. That, that doesn't take account of the castle and the palace, which are off. You could easily take a whole day for museums, right? And then finish up at... Well, 10 minutes away from the Royal Mile, you've got the National Museum of Scotland, which has got a wonderful collection. And again, it's free. Yeah. And then finish up at the Greyfriars Bobby. Finish at the Greyfriars. <laughs> well, you go to the National Museum, then across the road is Greyfriars Bobby, where you can get food as well as drink. Perfect. Well, Eric, I want to thank you so much. This has been so illuminating and fun. And thank you for your time. It's a great pleasure meeting you. I so appreciate everything. And also pick up these books because it's a great way. I like to, before I go to a place, I like to peak my, I like to learn about it and peak my curiosity and then experience it. So these share the walks as well as the stories. Right. One walks you from the castle down to the palace and the other walks you through the first Edinburgh Newtown, which was started in 1767. Yes. And the people who lived in these places and their stories. I love it. Thank you so Bye. much, Eric. Thank you. I'm delighted to have had the chance to chat to you, Carrie. So good luck with your project. Nice meeting you. All of Eric's links are below in the show notes, so don't miss an opportunity to set up a tour with Eric, grab one of his books, learn from the inside out the city he loves. Next week, we'll be speaking with our first head of whiskey. Lori Black is the co-founder of Whiskey at Bevy, which was established in 2021 and has emerged as the ultimate digital whiskey companion. As head of whiskey, Lori has curated a database of 150,000 unique whiskeys. I actually think it's much higher than that now. But we'll meet him next week and enjoy your weekend.